Elliot, we're back reopening our Crypto Convos series for HPS Insights. This time we had a chance to sit down with Sue Friedman of Ripple. We've been working with them for a little over a year and they've done a fantastic job educating and engaging folks on the Hill and within the administration about the work they're doing. I enjoyed this conversation to step back a little bit and kind of dive deep into the regulatory work they're interested in, the international work they're doing, their thoughts on CBDCs. Thought it was a great conversation to fit into our series. What were your thoughts? How did you think of it? I, I thought it was. I thought it was fantastic. I, you know, to me, Ripple has um, in the tools they've developed some of what I think are the most kind of intuitive use cases of crypto related to remittances and cross-border payments. And I, I think uh, when you start to sort of process what that could do as it relates to, you know, Sue mentioned the fees on remittances and, and actually raised an important kind of nuance that I don't hear a lot of people say, which is if you consider the type of expenses that remittances are supposed to support and finance, like, you know, basic food, shelter, clothing, it's even more obscene in some of these cases, the fees that are getting set aside, um, just doing something as basic as, as moving money, right? The other thing I think, you know, she touches on um, their work with CBDCs, you know, for as like hot button as CBDCs are in DC, certainly. Uh, and, you know, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a, a debate with a wider range of stakeholders and, uh, and, and people that obviously want to make their, their view clear. You know, the Ripple team has these pilots live uh, that, that, are, that are actively facilitating yep. some of the experimentation to figure out what works and, and how it would work. And, you know, what can we take forward from that other places? And so, you know, I, I view them very much on CBDCs as kind of the, as the doers out there actually facilitating some of these, um, some of these, you know, pretty creative finance tools. Um, and it was great to hear from Sue on that front. She's a great resource. She, she knows her stuff well from her time in Washington and just really thoughtful on a lot of these questions. So here it is, our, our conversation with Sue Friedman of Ripple. From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis, a partner here at HPS, and I'm joined once again today by my co-host, Elliot Owensby. Elliot's a senior director at HPS and our resident cryptocurrency expert. He's been joining me for a number of these episodes as we dive into conversations with folks who are involved in the cryptocurrency industry from different vantage points. Um, Elliot, great to have you back with us. Hey, Brian. Glad to be here. On today's episode of Crypto Convos, uh, we have a very special guest joining us, Sue Friedman. Sue is the head of public policy at Ripple, vice chair of blockchain for Europe and chair of the Digital Pound Foundation. Prior to joining Ripple, Sue was a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Treasury. There, she helped develop and execute on strategic priorities related to international financial services regulation, investment security, and trade. A very impressive resume. Sue, welcome to HPS Insights. Brian, thank you so much for having me here today. Let's jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about your background, and then we can jump in and tell us a little bit more about Ripple. Sure. So I am, you know, that most uncommon of things in DC, which is to say 
a lawyer by training and uh, worked at one of the big law firms before making the jump to the Department of the Treasury. Um, And their treasury deals with basically everything that you could think about that might touch the financial space. So in my role, worked on uh, legal issues related to the international financial institutions, CFIUS, trade, banking. Um, And in my last role there, I was a senior advisor to Heath Tarbert, who was uh, named the chair of the CFTC, but in that role was the assistant secretary for international markets. And it was during that time where we got, I got my first lesson in blockchain and crypto from uh, Treasury's excellent banking team. And it just, it was, it all served as an inflection point, you know, having that uh, 101 in terms of what the space is. And then um, it was just, I think, at the time where a number of companies were starting to look at DC in terms of opening up their own policy shops. The opportunity came up at Ripple pretty much uh, around the same time. And I was lucky enough to be able to to, to join the team here. Perfect. So just for our uh, listeners' sake, around what years was that when when Treasury was first starting to look at this and you were over there at Treasury? I will say that I think that others in Treasury were looking at crypto before, say, I was looking at crypto, but the uh, yeah. I, I don't want to undercut or undersell all of the, the knowledge of that went in there. But I think we got, I, our Heath and um, was briefed, I want to say around 2018, 2019. Great. And then, Great. Uh, yeah. Yes. And um, it was really- I mostly ask because sometimes, you know, in this town, I feel like people think cryptocurrency started uh, sometime in late 2021. But the point being, it's it's been around for a long time. And um, DC's, as it often does, is way behind and kind of finally catching up. But but never a doubt that folks at Treasury and others were, were well ahead of the curve on this front. No, absolutely. I think there have been some at Treasury tracking it for quite a while. But but Ripple was actually one of the companies that was coming in to talk to policymakers at the time. And I think uh, it definitely, and, and we've seen it since, has just gotten more and more attention from government officials at all levels. Sure. So tell us a little bit more about Ripple and the work you all are doing? Sure. So Ripple, from its very inception, has been focused on the cross-border payment space. We have um, Mm -hmm. an enterprise software solution built on blockchain. Uh, That messaging solution combined with the use of a digital asset, Ripple uses XRP, is meant to help unlock inefficiencies in the cross-border payment space. And I think you know, those inefficiencies are well known. We're seeing more and more people try and disrupt it, but it, it is slow. It's inefficient. Much of uh, it has high fees associated to it. And it often, you know, when you're trying to send money cross-border and, and trying to put it in the hands of people who need it, the last thing you want is 7%, up to 7% of that amount to be eaten up in fees because that money is usually used for food or clothing or housing or all, all of the basic needs that you associate with cross-border remittances. So Ripple, the Ripple solution is meant to, to help solve that problem. And in addition to cross-border payments, the you know increasingly we're seeing the, the company focus in other areas, including CBDCs, NFTs. Mm-hmm. There's a whole, a whole range of um, areas where the company has been getting involved in. But the, the core mission remains, how, how do you get value to move in the same way that information does today as seamlessly and as efficiently. Great. Um, 
obviously by your your title one of your jobs is is the policy work here in Washington so considering where we are in terms of you know the administration in congress trying to define the regulatory landscape what i'd love your take what needs to happen to provide that sort of regulatory certainty that the crypto industry is looking for i think it's uh, a simple question with no simple answer uh <laughs> Sure. That, Sue? That's all we want to know. Just if you could, you know, overhaul the landscape, what would you do? I think the core issue that we are thinking about, um, and I, I mean it, there this the regulatory problem is multifaceted, and and there are um, different companies are thinking about it from different perspectives. One of the core issues that we are focused on is how do you better define what these digital assets are within our existing financial regulatory frameworks. So what you hear, are they securities? Are they commodities? Should they be defined as something else? Who has regulatory oversight over these assets? How do you how do you define the space in a way that protects consumers, but that if you are a new innovator entering the market, you you understand what these things are and and what your responsibilities are to the public and to the regulators. And so there are other bills out there that focus on different issues. Stable coins are are an area that's getting its whole a whole separate suite of bills devoted specifically to how right. do you regulate stablecoin issuers, but um just as one example, but the the space that we think about or and have been really trying to dig in on both in the US and abroad is how do you define the framework for uh for crypto assets. A lot of folks in the industry have come out with calls for legislation that, you know, would would designate the CFTC as the primary agency over the SEC. Um, Gensler a few weeks ago signaled, Gary Gensler, that is, of the SEC, signaled he may want to work with the CFTC a little more. Where do you all fall? What should be in, in legislation, ideally, that helps maintain U.S. leadership in blockchain? I think from Ripple's perspective, you know, a a couple of things. I don't think we see Congress necessarily creating a new regulator to have dominion over the space. And so then the question becomes, we also don't look at it as a binary SEC or CFTC. We think that because of the way, because of the dynamic nature of digital assets, it's likely both agencies are going to have jurisdiction over part of the life cycle on, on where they fall on the spectrum. And I think we're seeing that reflected in some of the proposals that are coming out there in particular, the Digital Commodity Exchange Act uh, basically proposes that when coins are first issued, and this was a bill that was introduced last session that we believe will be reintroduced uh, this year, but it, it, it essentially tries to split the world in accordance with how the SEC and the CFTC jurisdiction currently works. So for coins that are newly issued that look like capital raises, those would fall under SEC jurisdiction. For tokens that are freely trading, that are decentralized on platforms, those would fall under CFTC jurisdiction. It provides some bright lines in a way that the current regulatory environment does not. And importantly, it brings platforms into a regulatory, under federal regulatory oversight, which is something that we've heard lots of angst about at the federal level, meaning how, you know, how do you bring these platforms so that they have greater oversight than just the money transmitter licensing regime. So importantly, 
And this point has been made multiple times in multiple venues. Platforms are regulated today. I think the question is, is there additional oversight that can be brought to bear at the federal level that provides greater consumer protection? And the answer is sure. DCEA seeks to accomplish that. Not to ramble on, but one other point. I think what sometimes gets lost in this debate is um, there's this argument that players want the CFTC to have jurisdiction over the platform's or the tokens because they're a quote unquote easier regulator. And that's not it. I think um, one, CFTC has robust jurisdiction and all you have to do is go to their website and look at the enforcement actions they brought in the digital asset space to know that. But two, I think the reason why um, industry gravitates toward the CFTC is because they have a principles-based regime and as opposed to a overly prescriptive rules-based regime. And that sort of flexibility, we think, is better suited to the digital asset marketplace. I will say, Sue, obviously, uh, Chair Benamite was on the Hill last month asking for, you know, basically half a billion more dollars to do enforcement and, and you know, uh, rulemaking and, and investi- investigative work on a, a potentially expanded scope of authority. And I don't think you go ask Congress for, you know, $500 million to go easier on everybody, right? I think, I think right. they are well equipped and they're geared up and they're, they're ready to go as soon as they get the, as soon as they get the sign off, right? I, I, I agree with you. That's a very common misnomer that I've I don't really understand. I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, whether or not the split is ultimately made to bring the platforms under had to have the SEC as a primary regulator, or the CFTC as a primary regulator, there is no doubt that there is going to be a robust enforcement, you know, all around. I think it's just a question of who, which is the better fit. And Chair Benham is clearly making the case that the CFTC has uh, the knowledge and the wherewithal to to be a player in this space, and and we are supportive of that. I. Uh... Brian mentioned we've been having these conversations with folks, um, and one thing that's come up repeatedly is, and you touched on it a little bit, uh, you know, the the kind of the learning curve in in crypto and blockchain and Web three and whatever you want to call the big umbrella, um, and and how you know everyone sort of navigates that. Uh, to your to your prior point, of course, there's someone at Treasury, uh, just given the caliber of the staff there, that was like reading the Satoshi paper like the next day, right? Like it's not like all of a sudden in 2018 or whatever this became a thing. Um, but I'm curious in your in your how would you say you know maybe since you've been at Ripple or since from kind of um, as you dug in on on crypto and blockchain, you know what is your take on how that has changed or not changed in terms of the the level of understanding and awareness of kind of even some of the like kind of underlying technologies. I feel like I hear members of Congress are more technical on some crypto things than on, you know, the federal tax code or, or things that you would really expect they would be intimately familiar with, right? I mean, I'm just curious for your perspective on, you know, has it changed? And and if so, kind of, you know, what what's the order of magnitude or or uh, on which topics do you feel like all of a sudden now people are conversant in a way that they were not before? I think it's a great question. I, you know, I think there is a greater overall awareness and knowledge um, on the Hill, even if it isn't internalized by every single member. Every single member has staffers that are internalizing these message messages about crypto. And you can see it in the level of discourse and the questions that we're getting at hearings. I mean, two years ago when I started 
Rep Sherman uh, was uh, basically accusing everyone who was involved in crypto as being a narco terrorist. And I think he still will make those statements. But the difference is, is that now you have other members of the committee who are either actively disagreeing with him or they're just not coming from a place or coming from the starting point that crypto is only used for, for bad acts. It isn't to say that the market is perfect and that it couldn't benefit from additional regulatory regimes. But I think, you know, what you're seeing are people trying to dig in and figure out how you get to the rational solutions without uh, just making broad assertions about the state of the crypto market in general. And I think that it is a result of the educational efforts undertaken by trade associations, by the companies individually. I think members are taking it upon themselves to, to learn more. Um, and the result is you get a more robust and substantive conversation about how what the endpoint should actually look like. Yeah. And I, Sue, I think to your earlier point, the industry for quite some time now has taken a pretty comprehensive view of Washington. They're trying to educate all the regulators and the stakeholders on the Hill. They're They're asking for regulation. I mean, at this point, they're virtually begging for regulation and action. So, you know, they're there, they're educating, they're, they're not pushing necessarily one or the other. They're kind of just trying to inform the entire uh, ecosystem in DC. I do just want to ask one, one question. It'd be remiss if I, I skipped over, which is, you know, a lot of people have heard about Ripple and the SEC's legal issues and the lawsuit. So can you just quickly, I'm sure that's a question at this point in the, in the process for the lawyers, but just give us a little sense of what's the basis for that? What's that all about? Sure. So the case comes down really to one legal question, whether or not XRP, which is the digital asset that Ripple uses in conjunction with its products, is an investment contract. And that that term investment contract has legal meaning uh, under U.S. securities law. I think you know what we always note, and I think it's important, that the SEC did not allege fraud. They didn't uh, against either Ripple or the individual executives sued. And I think that that suit is really a reflection of the unsettled regulatory state in the U.S. regarding how to treat digital assets. And Brian, to your point that all of crypto is calling out for regulation, the SEC's rejoinder to that is that Howey test, which is a 1930s court case that sets forth uh, the legal test for what is a security, um, their answer is look to the Howey test. But I think what, what we're finding, what we believe is that that test does not provide the sort of clear, bright line parameters that you need to carry the industry forward. It's why... I think Congress is looking at legislative solutions. I think part of the work that's being undertaken by the executive branch agencies in conjunction with the Biden administration EO is going to to get at this question. And we're going to start to see some responses of of how do you put um, clearer parameters around a test that dealt with orange grooves in the 1930s to have it apply more clearly to crypto assets. And Howie, of course, was the creator of Bitcoin. Uh, No, not, not exactly. Florida in the 30s sounds like it was a lot of fun. Um, so that I think is a, is a great jumping off point. The uncertainty in the U S relative to a lot of our major competitors and other major economies, uh, around the world that are making much more, at least, you know, much more progressive or, or, or productive 
headway in terms of establishing, okay, what are the frameworks and how, you know, what does a sandbox look like? And, you know, how can we use these tools to, you know, power economic growth, to compete for talent and compete for economic growth, uh, you know, around the, around the world. So I'd be curious, we touched a little bit in your intro, obviously you've done a lot of work in Europe, um, but I know there are, you know, in Japan and in the UAE and uh, really around the world, there's another, a number of places that are, are all looking to kind of formalize this. And I mean, you know, I'm editorializing, but my, my personal view is that if they get there before we do, that's not great for America. Uh, so maybe I've betrayed my bias too, but with that, with that leading question, um, can you just tell us a little bit about um, your work in Europe um, with, with Blockchain for Europe and the Digital Pound Foundation? No, absolutely. I, I mean, the answer to that point is that other countries have already gotten there. They are ahead <laughs> of late. Okay, good. <laughs> Something that I am sure that the Department of Commerce is going to be taking a look at when they are um, they are looking at American competitiveness as part of the charge under the Biden EO. And right now in Europe, uh, the markets and crypto assets regulation is actively being debated. We expect it will be passed by the end of the year. That regulation sets forth an EU-wide framework for crypto assets. And you can have issues with some of the specific provisions of what it says and, and how it regulates the space. But I think the point, the main point is that it sets forth a clear framework. You will go into the EU and understand who is regulating you, how these assets are characterized, how you can operate and function. And that is absolutely a competitive advantage vis-a-vis the U.S. and something that I think, um, you know, our hope is that and our expectation is that and they, you know, we've seen we saw some tweets in the aftermath of the Biden EO that Congress is fully going to keep up its work, even while the Biden administration EO studies and reports are taking place, because I, I don't think we can afford to lose six to eight months while other countries are are moving ahead. Um, blockchain for Europe is very much focused on advocating for an open and productive crypto environment within the EU. We've been engaging with EU policymakers uh, throughout the pendency of the MECA debates. Uh, and, and the goal is to, to put in place exactly, you know, a clear framework that, you know, looks to balance consumer protection with innovation. Uh, the Digital Pound Foundation is a little bit different, more focused on central bank digital currencies, but I think they are, uh, you know, definitely part of this discussion about what a broader digital asset ecosystem looks like. And their focus is is how do you um, develop, how do you come up with a well-designed and implemented digital pound, which is very similar. You know, the Fed is looking at these questions. Central banks globally are looking at these questions. And it's important that the that whatever is decided in one jurisdiction, that that knowledge is shared and um, considered globally, because what you don't want are walled gardens where you develop these, these tools that can only be used in specific jurisdictions, but can't be used outside. Economics has a diversity problem. The Sadie Collective is the first and only organization dedicated to addressing the pipeline and pathway problems for Black women in economics, finance, data science, and public policy. Named after the first African American to earn a PhD in economics, the Sadie Collective seeks to support and inspire the next generation of Black women in these career fields. To learn more about the collective and how you can get involved, email sadiecollective at hamiltonps.com or visit sadiecollective.org. 
Sue, I did want to spend a few minutes while we have you talking about central bank digital currencies. I know Ripple is doing a, a lot of work internationally on this front. So can you spend a few minutes and share with our listeners um, your point of view on CBDCs, Ripple's point of view, that is, and any updates or, or interesting case studies you can share with us on what's being done across the globe on this front? Um, thank you for the question. I think, you know, we view CBDCs as part of that digital asset ecosystem and not to the exclusion of privately issued solutions like stable coins, but meant to be complementary to, you know, I think the one of the most interesting applications as we think about it, and I think we're going to see some really interesting responses to the, the Fed consultation that's happening now, but the idea, for example, of programmable money and the idea that a central bank or a government can direct cash to exactly who it intends to send it to for the specific purpose for which it's being spent. I think when you think about this in the context of COVID, it's really, it's it's sort of incredible. Ripple has developed a private ledger solution that's uh, based off the XRP ledger. We are working with um, Bhutan and Palau are two of the countries and, and that we have announced partnerships with and that we're exploring CBDC solutions with. We are also involved, I think, in the, the policy space generally, and, and our work on the Digital Pound Foundation uh, is meant to reflect this, to help contribute to some of the thought leadership going into CBDCs. I think, you know, our, we want to make sure that as countries consider whether and how to issue them, again, that they're, that they're thinking about all the ways in which they could potentially be useful. And in some cases, it may be that a privately issued solution is going to be the better choice there. But also, you know, how do you implement third party actors like Ripple? How do you uh, think about the policy mm-hmm. environment? How, how do you make it function in a way that's effective with existing monetary systems? So and, and we are definitely not the multiple players. I think there are going to be multiple views. And I think uh, being able to participate in this debate is going to be incredibly interesting as as. 2022 continues to unfold. Sue, I think we have time for for one or two more. I I did want to ask. We I I joked a little bit earlier that that DC discovered crypto last year and the infrastructure uh, bill minted a lot of Bitcoin, Brian. It, it did, it did. Um, but I do, it, you know, in a similar joke. But I think DC is finally moving from kind of crypto 101 uh, to that sophomore year, maybe education level on it. What what do you find as you're working up on the Hill, as you're meeting that outside the handful of regulators that really get this, what is the audience of DC still not wrapping their head around when it comes to cryptocurrency? Oh, that's a good question. And a little bit of a hard one. Uh, because I'm not sure that I've wrapped my head around all things related to crypto. It's I think it's partly reflective. It's an evolving of exactly, space. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think when you, to your point, we are definitely in the sophomore phase. There are true leaders in Congress who have not only wrapped their head around it, but are trying to educate and, and uh, be involved in the conversation. They include, but are in no way limited to uh, Rep. G.T. Thompson, uh, Rep. McHenry, 
Senator Lamas, Senator Gillibrand, Senator Stabenow, uh, Senator Bozeman, Rep Delgado, Rep Khanna is very involved in the fintech space. You you have multiple leaders on both sides of the aisle, Rep Emmer, uh, who are taking the lead in terms of proposing legislation and looking to help educate colleagues on this. So I I don't I think for all of us it is very much still a space where we're learning and trying to get up to speed. But I definitely think you have people who are starting to get into the nuance of it and really thinking about how do you deal with assets that are dynamic? How do you impose regulatory oversight structures that make sense? How do you, and and in a way that's, you know, it, I think everyone recognizes you can't just slap legacy financial infrastructure framework on, but how do you work within those structures to make it work for, for these new things with regulators that have experience that can be brought to bear. So it's a, I think it's it's if you're a policy wonk, it is a very cool time to be in DC as these things are actually literally being written right now. Yeah, it's a I Elliot and I have been saying this to each other for months. It's a rare moment in Washington where the regulatory and, and legislative part of the city is introducing itself to a new industry, learning it while working with it to regulate. You don't see that a lot in our work and in our time. So it's, I find it a really exciting moment. He's being kind to my Twitter addiction, uh, wherein I just DM him tweets pretty much around the clock. But I will just add that one other you know unique aspect of it is like, in what other policy debate can you spend like, call it you know, spend 24 hours, maybe not consecutive, but spend 24 hours looking at some memes. And like, you know, more than about 95% of other people about this topic. I mean, that to me is the real gateway drug of crypto is like, it'll just find you out there. And then all of a sudden, you're like, well, wait a second, hold on. Why do I know so much about I I mean, I did not engage with Twitter really at all prior to taking this job. And it has been very much straight down the rabbit hole for the past two years. A somewhat alarming rabbit hole at times, but... It can, it can be. Um, on that note, I, I have about 1,200 more questions, but you've been super generous with your time. So we'll we'll wrap it there. And, and I hope you will uh, join us again for a future episode, because I think we'll be talking about this topic and going deeper into it uh, for probably years to come. So Sue, thank you so much for joining us on HPS Insights. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me both. Elliot, always a pleasure. And for our listeners, you can check out the rest of our Crypto Convo series at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com or anywhere you get your uh, podcast delivered to you, Apple, Amazon, whichever is your preference. To hear more and learn more about Hamilton Place Strategies, you can also follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com.